Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Central Presbyterian Church today. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us as we're continuing to study Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we come in chapter one at the end to a bit of Paul's testimony this morning. You've heard the story already that Paul and Barnabas had gone throughout the region of Galatia and planted churches. And after they left, there were some teachers called Judaizers that came in and, and began to say, what Paul taught you is good, but you need something more. Surely you need to trust Jesus, absolutely, but if you really want to know that God favors you, then you need to keep the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised to keep the dietary laws and, and all the rest you need, Christ plus. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian Christians to call them to back to Christ, to Christ alone who makes us right before God. But how could they know that Paul was right? How could you tell well, this morning, as Paul tells us a little bit of his own story, he says, look at what God has done in me. There is a power in me. Christ has changed my life. He can change your life too. Can you trust him with your life today? Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word. Oh, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to open our eyes that we might see and behold the Lord Jesus we pray that you would change us and mold us and shape us to be more like him as we are searched by your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. Perhaps you've heard of George Whitfield. He was a colonial era evangelist whom God used incredibly powerfully, but there was a reason for that power in his life and in his ministry, and it wasn't always there. When he was 16 years old in England, Whitfield began to become aware of his sin, his disobedience before the Lord, and so he did what a lot of people do in religious communities. He decided that he would try to ease his sense of guilt and shame through doing loads of religious duties. 
pile upon pile of religious activity to try to get free from that sense of sin in his life. He started to fast in order to demonstrate his commitment to the Lord. In fact, Whitfield began to fast 36 hours at a time, twice a week, every week. He was starving himself, he said. He tried formal prayers at certain hours of the day, every day. He did so many other religious activities, and he said, it did nothing but make me more miserable. All of his religious deeds did nothing to give him a sense of salvation and freedom from sin's guilt and sin's power. That is until he met Charles Wesley. He was a fellow student in university with him, the Wesley who wrote, And Can It Be?, that the choir just sang. Charles Wesley put a Bible in Whitfield's hands and turned to John chapter 3 and said, George, you must be born again. And it was by the Spirit of God's work, Whitfield's eyes were opened, he repented of his sin and realized the only way to be saved from being eternally lost was it, was it piling religious duty on top of religious duty. It only comes through trusting the God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. George Whitfield was born again by God's grace, not putting confidence in all of his religious duties, but in God's grace alone. And then he came here. He was sent to the colonies to begin to preach, and that necessity of being born again was Whitfield's primary text for all of his ministries. In fact, he preached that passage over 1,000 times here in the colonies. Now, Whitfield, just like you and me, had indwelling sin in the rest of his life. He wasn't a perfect man, far from it, and yet his confidence was not in his obedience before God. His confidence was in Christ who's given him life. Is Christ your confidence this morning? These verses we have today offer a little bit of Paul's story of what God had done for him and what God had done in him. Verse 11 says that the gospel he preached didn't come from man. It wasn't taught from him, taught to him by the apostles in Jerusalem, but rather he received it directly from God. If you know your Bibles, you might remember that Paul is talking about that meeting recorded in Acts chapter 9 where Paul was met by the risen Lord Jesus on his road to Damascus as he was going to persecute and arrest Christians. And as he met that risen from the dead Lord Jesus, Paul's life was changed forever. He says he didn't go to confer with the other apostles to make sure that he got the gospel right, but verse 17, he went to Arabia. He began to proclaim that gospel that, that Jesus had taught him. He went later to go see the apostles, but as an independent witness of the gospel that had been revealed to him. Now, what reads in these verses a little bit like a, a, a travel log of defense. In some ways it is. Why did he give it? Well, Technically, if he didn't get his gospel from the apostles, they can't accuse him of distorting their gospel, can they? If he, they can't accuse him of re removing the offensive pieces to make it more believable by Gentiles. In short, Paul's saying, you can't accuse me of distorting their message because I didn't get it from them. I got it from Jesus himself. But again, these Galatian Christians had to wonder, how can we trust it? How can we trust what Paul says versus trusting these Judaizers? And Paul says, look, look at the power of God at work within me. It's the story of his testimony of Jesus alive within him. 
Jesus laying hold of his life, it gives a story to tell. I wonder, can Jesus be seen in your life? People look at you, can they see a Christ who is alive and at work? What's your story? What does it look like when God changes someone? Well, three points for us this morning. First, our story is a story of change. It's like Paul in in verses 13 and 14. He's essentially saying, look at the before and after pictures. Before, I was a violent persecutor of the people of God, the church, who dared to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And he says, not only did I persecute them and arrest them and try to kill and destroy the church of God, but verse 14, I was more Jewish than all the Judaizers. These people who came in behind me, I'm more Jewish than they were. I was advancing in Judaism more than any in my, in my own generation. He's saying, look, I worked harder than anybody to make these prescriptions of the traditions of Judaism my own. I did it right. I was faithful in following the rules of God. If God gives favor based on faithfulness to the traditions of the Jews, then I'm exhibit A. I deserve it. I did it right. Paul says, but it didn't work. It didn't work for Paul, and trusting in our religious observance won't work for us either. Verse 15 begins with but. <laughs> Seeing those but, those old ways of performance cannot bring us life because hoping and relying upon performance won't work because the problem is deeper than our performance. That's what the law of God shows us. The, the law of God rightly understood isn't simply about rules that are easy to obey. Like, well, nobody sees me kill anybody. Nobody's seen me steal from anyone. But the law of God instead cuts to our hearts. The law of God examines our motives. It, it goes deep within. And in that place of our motives and in the depth of our hearts, we find an ocean of sin. Sure, I've, I've never murdered anyone. I can testify to that truth, but if you look inside my heart, I've killed thousands by counting people unworthy, worthless, people to be to nothing, good for nothing but passing judgment upon them. I've killed thousands. That's what Jesus says the law does. That's what that command means in the depth of our hearts. And I'm not a thief. I haven't stolen things. Maybe you haven't either been a thief or stolen things, but the truth is that We've stolen reputations. We've stolen the good names of people by gossiping or, or slandering, by saying, I'm not sure you can trust what that person says about God or about God's work in their life. I'm going to throw a little shade, a little bit of doubt, and we're stealing their good name in Christ. See, friends, the problem isn't simply what we do. The problem is with our hearts and what, what our hearts love. And we simply can't perform ourselves out of that slavery to sin and to self and to self-promotion. It doesn't work for any of us. And Paul says, something happened to me. That's how I was changed. Something happened to me. So much so that verses 23 and 24, I became a kind of a legend. These people in these churches in Judea, they've not seen my face, but they hear the story. The one who persecuted us has now become a preacher of that same gospel. You see, friends, I'm not the same person, Paul says, and they glorified God because of what they saw in me. His story was, I'm a living miracle. 
I'm a different person. I'm, I have a changed life, and God is the only one who could change me like that. Before and after, what's your story? What's the story of how God has changed you? Now, that doesn't mean that Paul had this instantaneous transformation and became a completely different person. He wasn't, and neither are you or me. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, one of his last letters, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Not I used to be. And I formerly was the chief of sinners, but he still struggled with corruption and remaining sin within his life. So do you and I. But friends, God changed him. And if you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, if you've been justified, we'll study that word when we come to the next chapter. That means the verdict has been pronounced that you are not guilty for your sin because Jesus was counted guilty in your place. And his righteousness, his perfect record of complete obedience has been given to you and received through faith. If you've been justified by trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus, then he also has set to work sanctifying you, changing your life, making you to be more and more like him. If you've trusted Jesus for your salvation, he is alive and at work to bring change in your life. What's your story of change? What has God done within you? How has Jesus changed you from, to live for him instead of only ever living for self? It's part of our story. We have a changed life. But second, we have a story of how God changes us. Get verse 13 and 14. Who's at work here? Paul says, I taught, I received, I persecuted, But when we get to verses 15 and 16, where Paul begins to talk about what happened to him, it changes. The the person who's doing the work changes. He says, God was pleased. God called. God revealed Christ. Because it is God who acts upon us to call us to himself and change our lives. You see, friends, all that savagery and violence and self-righteousness was no match for God's work in Paul's life to save him. The same is true for you and me. No one is too filled with sin, nor is God's arm too short to save. He can save anyone, including me, Paul would say. There was an English poet named Francis Thompson. Maybe you've heard of him. He was born to a wealthy family, and yet he fell into hard times. Thompson became an opium addict, and he began living with a prostitute. And in that era of his life, he started writing poetry. And his most famous poem is entitled, The Hound of Heaven. Maybe you've heard of that poem. He says his entire life that he had run from God. This is what he wrote. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears... I hid from him. And yet the hound of heaven, God himself, pursued Thompson. He was relentlessly being chased by this hound, not to harm him, but the hound of heaven who wanted to love him and set his affection upon him. Friends, the same is true for us. We have been pursued by that hound of heaven who nips our heels and chases us to the cross. 
where we see love and we find mercy, where we can lay aside all of our trust and our religious duties and our observance and I can be good enough for God. The Lord chases us to the cross where we lay it all aside and say, I am only who I am because God has saved me. He's captured me by his grace, by his undeserved favor in my life. That's where Paul was when Jesus met Paul on that road to Damascus. That hound of heaven had been at work. He says in verse 15 that God had set him apart before he was even born. It separated separated me out of my mother's womb. That's how God works. From eternity past, the heavenly father set his affection upon Paul and upon you and me. And Jesus came to accomplish that work of bringing us to God by paying for our sin on the cross. And the Holy Spirit puts it to work. He applies it into our hearts. As the Spirit of the living God invades our lives to make that effective love work in you right now. He enables us to believe. He gives us strength to obey when we have no strength left. I think one, as one commentator said, the story is less that Paul made a personal decision for Christ And it's more that God made a personal decision for Paul. God laid hold of his life like he will lay hold of your life and my life and he will turn us around by his power. Not because we deserve it. But as he says in verse 15, we are called by his grace. That gift of his divine favor when we deserve exactly the opposite. As religiously observant and accomplished as Paul was, his confidence wasn't in all of his duty or being good enough for God. His confidence was in a grace that he could not deserve. Same's true for you and for me. It's that same God who was pleased, verse 16, he says, to reveal his son to me. It's when Paul met the Lord on that road to Damascus. God removed the scales from his eyes so that he recognized Jesus for who he really is. But look more carefully. Literally, what Paul writes was that he was pleased to reveal his son not to me, but in me. Not just to me, but but in me. What's the difference in that two verses in? Well, I think it, it points to this, that God didn't just show Paul another idea that he didn't know about. But instead, the truth of whom Jesus is, the Messiah, it took personal effect in Paul's life. He was born again through faith in Christ, Christ in him that crucified and resurrected Jesus, birthing life in him received through faith. That's what God does. It's Christ in me. That's the hope of glory, Christ in us. And I want you to listen very carefully That's what I'm about to say. Sometimes churchy people can be so concerned with having the ideas of Christianity affect the culture that we neglect Christ in me. You say it another way. Sometimes we can be really committed to the cause of Christ in the world while neglecting the person of Christ born and living within me. God calls us to more than a set of ideas. He calls us to more than Christian policy positions in the world. He calls us to more than a Christian ethic shown before the world. Jesus wants to permeate your whole life, your whole being, 
everything about you because his grace changes everything. He's formed within you, the Bible says. And we can be so focused on winning the culture war out there and neglect the work that Jesus is doing in here. Our hope is Christ in me, transforming us that we become more and more like him. The question is, have you been born again? The question is, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus and his work to give you life in the place of your death, even a spiritual death while being committed to Christian ideas? Do you know Christ in you? Jesus wants more for you than to be committed to a cause. He wants you. He treasures you. That's our hope when we run out of power. That's our strength when we are weak. Christ in me. When I feel like I can't go anywhere, I can't do anything, I can't, I can't make any progress in my life, the hope is the story of Christ in me. Christ in us, giving us life and hope and strength and joy and change. If you know Jesus, you have a story of Christ in you. And finally, we have a story of God using us for others. Get verse 16. God set Paul on a mission. He was saved in order that. He was saved in order that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to the nations. When God saves any of us, he lays hold of our lives and he sets us on a mission for him and his kingdom, living for his kingdom rather than our own kingdoms. Now, Paul's specific commission was to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles, which would have probably been quite a surprise. Here he was, as he says in other places, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one who was advancing in Jewish traditions above everybody else. He was a wonderfully observant Jew, and yet God saved him and sent him to Gentiles to be an apostle. Surprising. The truth is, friends, that Every one of us have been saved to be set on mission for Christ in our everyday lives. Our lives are about more than personal peace or convenience or personal comfort, or as Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, it's about more than personal peace and affluence. God lays hold of you to set you on mission. That doesn't mean that you have to go around the world. I remember a hilarious song that Randy used to sing, God Don't Send Me to Africa. Anybody remember that song? Your mission may not be being sent onto the other side of the globe. The mission God sets you upon might be to the person in the cubicle next to you at your workplace both in how you do your work as a Christian and the testimony that you have before that person in your workplace. It might be for your neighbor across your back fence. The mission where God might send you is with a friend. It might be even in your own home. Your parents have a mission with your own children that they know of Christ through you. Sometimes where and how God uses us may be a surprise. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes we're not even able to see it in the moment. Who is your in order that? Where is your in order that? Where God is sending you to bear witness to his kingdom. Some of you may remember when Missy and our, I and our family were here before, when I was an associate pastor, that 
in between adopting Emma and before adopting Isaiah, we tried to adopt another little girl. Some of you were tender with us in that, in that hardship. There was a woman that we were introduced to in a different state through a set of friends, and she was an unwed woman, pregnant and needed help. And here we were, people who deeply believed in the sanctity of human life and wanted to give our lives to adoption, giving our lives to to welcoming children into our home that weren't biologically ours because we believe that life has value from womb to tomb. It's all sacred before our Lord. So we were introduced to this unwed mother and began to build a relationship with her. We paid for her counseling. We gave her health care. We loved her. We blessed her. We began to build a close relationship with her. And the day came when we went to the hospital for the birth of this little girl. The little girl on the birth certificate was given a family name that Missy and I had picked out. And we were packing up to bring our little girl home from the hospital and the birth mother changed her mind. She decided that she wanted to parent her daughter and it was absolutely devastating to us. It was devastating. We, we, we expected that we were going to the hospital and would bring home our child and yet we left that hospital empty-handed and broken-hearted and we wondered why. Lord, why would you do this? Why would you have us commit so deeply into, into this story only to rip the rug out from under us past the 12th hour? Why would you do that to us? Now, ultimately, we don't know the answer to that question. But a few years later, we were given a brief glimpse into our in order that, in that situation. Not too many years ago, this birth mother wrote Missy and me a letter. I might get emotional about this. She wrote us a letter because she wanted us to know how her life has turned out. She's married. This little girl is beautiful and thriving. She has a a younger sister now. This young woman's life has turned out wonderfully. And in the letter that she wrote to us, she told us how she had learned about Jesus growing up, but by the time she had met us, she was far from him. She felt so judged by how she lived her life. And It's no credit to us, but it's Christ in us. She says that the way that we loved her and served her and blessed her and welcomed her taught her something different. She said the way that God enabled you to open your hearts and welcome me into your life and your family, even the possibility of raising my little girl showed me something about how God might love me, how he might feel about me. She wrote especially about how the Lord enabled us to respond to her with love, even in the depth of the pain of the loss of that adoption. It was excruciating pain, and yet watching us, watching Christ in us, she said, if Jesus can enable you to respond like that to that intense pain, then he has to be real. There has to be a God who can enable love in the midst of that kind of brokenness, and if he can show me himself through you, then maybe he can love me too. That's what she learned. We, we never imagined that our pro-life commitment would turn out like this. And yet that was our in order that. That this 
young woman in a place of crisis and desperation would know that there is a God who is alive, who loves all kinds of sinners and welcomes us by his grace rather than by piling religious duty on top of religious duty on top of religious duty. What's your in order that? Might be unexpected. The Lord may be calling you to walk a hard road, but if your story is that by trusting in the work of Jesus, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have a story to tell the nations. You have a story. Well, in fact, you are a story. You are a story of God's redeeming work, claiming you out of your sin and giving you eternal life. So tell your story. A story of life and of joy, even in the hardship, all because of Christ in you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've loved us enough to set your affection upon us. We don't deserve it. We can try until the cows come home. We can try to be good enough, and we never will. And yet, Lord, you set your affection upon us anyway because Christ was good enough for us. So we lay hold of his work. We lay hold of that truth of the cross that we are justified in your sight because Christ was judged in our place. And we've been given his righteousness. And we celebrate that we've been adopted as your sons and daughters brought into your family and you are changing us, making us to have more and more of a family resemblance. Lord, that is a miracle. You are the only one who could change lives like that. And so we testify today that we have a story of a God who's alive. Lord, use us as your instruments in order that the world may know that Jesus is alive and saves sinners. We pray all this in his name. Amen.